welcome to the I Believe podcast, a podcast created and funded by A Cure Insight. Here, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatment, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Thanks for joining us today, and I hope you'll be back soon. So Emily is, I mean, I just, I just have to like put a disclaimer out here. Emily is amazing. She is amazing. I stumbled across her page and probably like, I, I probably spent way too long just like diving through posts and just searching and searching. And I was newly diagnosed. So like, I'm just like sobbing, like reading all of the things because there's just so much that happened in her story. We're going to share a little bit of kind of a summary of that, but I'm going to not take too much time because I want to let Emily talk about her journey and Ian's journey. So Emily is a obviously an amazing person, but she is a grief coach and a fitness professional, a mother of two and a widow as of March of 2019, when her husband, Ian, passed away. They met as college sweethearts and they were stunned by Ian's cancer diagnosis just a year and a half after graduating college. But instead of allowing fear of Ian's diagnosis to dictate their future, the two of them got married and they started a family together. Six years later, they unfortunately discovered METS and decided to pursue experimental treatment at MD Anderson in Houston, Texas. After 15 months of treatments, um, Ian passed away in his hometown of Hawaii, leaving Emily with two children and a life she never imagined. Oh, guys, I didn't think I was going to get this emotional. (laughs) So she started to rebuild her life. She was overwhelmed by grief and just paralyzed by the reality of this new normal. And she leaned on her background as a former ballerina and a spin instructor and bar instructor. And she turned to fitness to cope with her grief. And so when verbalizing her feelings weren't easy or wasn't easy, she was able to manage her emotions by moving her body. Um, In December of 2019, she founded Move Through. And it is literally just all about helping adults who experience grief or the loss of someone special to cope with that through exercise um, and grief support. And she has learned so many different, so many different tools and techniques uh, that she has brought to the table. So I'm really excited to have her to talk to us because the reality is <laughs> that we all deal with grief, whether we're newly diagnosed or we are dealing with the loss of someone who we lost to this diagnosis. We're confronted with it every time that we see someone in the community who has passed away. And so this is a really important, it's a very uncomfortable topic, which I know Emily can can speak to that. I'm going to let her kind of take it away and briefly share uh, your story and Ian's story. Yes, definitely. Thank you. You're making me emotional too. <laughs> um, all right. So, I mean, Ian and I did, we met in college. Um, we kind of had one of those like fairy tale <laughs> romances where it was just fireworks and magic and all of the good stuff. And yeah, we dated all through college. And then during, we, we decided to take a break at the very end to try to go develop our lives independent of one another. And it was during that break that I received a call from Ian where he told me that he had woken up one morning and he couldn't see. And he was in China at the time, of all places. And so I can just imagine him, you know, in that waiting room wondering what's going on. And then a doctor in broken English kind of tells him, you have cancer. And he called me that day. And in a very ironic way, his diagnosis is kind of what brought him back to the United States and kind of brought us back together. I think at the time we... We were incredibly hopeful. We kind of ignored all the statistics that were out there because it was um, ocular melanoma that he was diagnosed with. And we just kind of said, you know, we're going to beat this. And and we, we decided to just proceed with life. We um, moved in together. We lived in Miami, Florida for, for three years. And he would travel out to, or the two of us would travel out to um, UCLA for medical treatment. We got married right after he got, we got married. Um, he had to have his eye removed because the low dose radiation wasn't, wasn't working. And so he, we thought that was the worst of it. We thought, all right, well, at least the tumor's out now. We're going to be okay. But we still did the scans like every other year. So during that time, um, we started a family. We moved all the way from Florida over to San Diego 
and we had my daughter Isabel and life was really, really amazing. Like Ian's cancer diagnosis felt very much in the past. It kind of felt behind us. We were, you know, doing the scans. We felt like we had a sense of control over the situation. And and then, yeah, one day at the beach, Ian received a call from his physical therapist because he had a drop foot and they were, he was wondering what that was all about. So he had seen a physical therapist and they ended up doing an MRI just to make sure it wasn't um, Mets. And it turns out that it was. There were Mets along his spine that were, were causing his foot to drop. And I, ha- I found this out right after we got the news that we were pregnant with our second. So um, for anyone watching this, I'm sure who's in similar situations, it was, it was a hard day. <laughs> That's kind of what really, like as soon as Ian's cancer metastasized, then it became really, really real for us. For some reason, I think prior to that, Ian and I, I don't know, we just really didn't see his life going the way that it did. It just, it wasn't even like a flicker in our imagination, which is, it's interesting to think about that now in hindsight. Um, And we can talk about that more if you want. But um, yeah, so once Ian's cancer metastasized, we decided to pursue treatment over at MD Anderson. Um, this meant that we moved our young family out to Colorado, which is where my family is from, so that we could have help because I was pregnant <laughs> and we had a two-year-old already at home with us. So Ian's mom basically moved herself from Hawaii all the way up to Colorado and the five of us all kind of tackled this together. It was truly a team effort. Um, so we fought for about 15 months doing various experimental treatments. And then in February of 2019, after another dose of Ipimivo, Ian said, you know, I don't think I'm a little worried that I'm not going to be able to make it home if we don't go now. And so we packed up our bags, went to Hawaii thinking maybe we'd come back, but we didn't really know. Because as you guys, as you probably know, you know, most people's survival rate after Mets Mets is six to nine months. Ian had already made it 15. So we kind of thought our time might be running out. So we went back to Hawaii thinking it would be kind of like a vacation. Um, Unfortunately, Ian's pain got really out of control. And we went to go see a palliative care doctor when we were there. And he said, Ian, you know... I'm so, so sorry, but you're, you're dying. And instead of Ian was hoping, you know, to do another intervention, but we ended up going into hospice at that point. And he passed away about two weeks after that in Hawaii. Um, It was beautiful passing. Friends and family were surrounding us. He was right in front of the Mokuluas, which is like his beautiful surf spot where he he grew up. Um, So it was, it was nice in that regard. Um, and then, I mean, it's been, it'll be three years in March and I'm skipping over a ton of details now, but basically, yeah, my life the past three years has kind of gone from surviving and just figuring out what to do in my life without him. And slowly with time, it's also turned into something really beautiful. It's turned into an opportunity for growth. Of course, I wish that Ian was here with us, (laughs) but I've accepted the fact that he's gone and, you know, it's changed me for the better in a lot of ways. And I feel like I'm honoring his legacy literally every day, just in the work that I'm doing now as a grief coach and with the company that I started, um, which is called Move Through, which Jeanette talked about. And um, yeah, basically that's like everything in a nutshell. Um, No, it's like you said, there's just, there's so much to cover and like, it's just, it's, it's a lot to condense down, like, and to summarize. So, and I know like also just, I know this weekend like has just been, I mean, I guess just from, just from reading some of your posts and things that you have talked about things, like I, I can see the trend of you know, you recognizing and learning the moments that are, that are more triggering for you and that kind of bring up that well of emotion again. Um, 
and I think you did like a reel maybe a little while ago where you talked about like, this isn't, there's, there's no moving on. There's moving through, there's moving with. And, and I think that I feel like that, that applies, that applies so much to every stage of this diagnosis, whether you have METs in the future or are a caregiver of someone who ends up metastatic um, or not. Um, I think that it applies everywhere. So I do want to ask you, because I think that I know the answer to this, but I, I think you also recognize it too. You mentioned, you mentioned earlier in, in his diagnosis um, when he had originally had his eye enucleated and you guys had started a family, you know, obviously you got married, you got, you just, you moved on, right? You, you left cancer behind and you said, you know, this isn't going to, this isn't going to take a precedence over us living, which is so important. That's such an important thing to do. But you also mentioned a little bit of like, I guess what I, what I heard or what I wonder if I heard was like, did you feel like there was some denial in there of like a, maybe a denial of a, a denial to accept the reality of what could happen in the future? Yeah. It's interesting that, that, that this is the first question. Cause I'm trying to explore this right now. I'm trying to yeah. write a book about this and it came up recently. Um, I think, I think for Ian, okay, well, first and foremost, Ian and I are both very positive people. <laughs> so we are like by nature, it's easy for us to say, oh, that's like not going to happen. Let's keep going. Like nothing's going to stop us from like smiling and having fun. That was kind of our mentality. But I do believe that there was a bit of, of denial. Probably, I, I you know, I took Ian's lead. I, I allowed Ian to lead and I kind of just followed. He was the one diagnosed and my job was to really support him. So his approach was I am going to kind of deny this. And he didn't really look at the facts and the figures that were out there. And it's interesting because now when I look back, it's like even early on when Ian was first diagnosed, there was like a 50% chance that he would die from, from that. Yeah. And that statistic didn't really stand out to me until now. And it's funny because when we got married, like my dad told me, as he was walking me down the aisle that he was like, yeah, there's like the fl a flip of a coin toss and Ian might not be around in five years. And I just didn't think about that. Neither of us, neither of us did. And it's, it can, it can be helpful. I think sometimes to take that and go, okay, yes, this is a possibility, but also I could get in a car accident tomorrow Absolutely. and we both could die. Like there are, I mean, death is just like, it's, it's an absolute reality of life. <laughs> like we yeah. have to, we have to accept that. <laughs> Really, and I think that's the thing. Like denial has this um, negative connotation around it, but it can also be really helpful. I yeah. mean, denial is kind of like a shock absorber to pain, right? Mm -hmm. And it is, it is, it is a protector. It enabled us to be able to live our life without fear. And there's a quote by David Kessler that I love, where he says, "Fear doesn't stop death." fear only stops you from living. And yeah. I thought that was a really, that's a really great mindset, I think, for anyone, you know, facing a diagnosis like this. And, and I think for Ian and I too, we kind of said, hey, like we can't control the future and what the future holds, but we can control what we do right now in this moment. And that was a recurring theme for us. Um, we navigated our path forward. That was, was it David Kessler? David Kessler. Yes. David Kessler. I'm going to have to write that down. That's a good one. Yeah. Okay. I love that. Um, and that is, that is definitely like, I'm one of those people too. Like I am one of those, like I, I try really, really hard. I've, I've trained myself to look for the good, to look for the gifts. I feel like we're going to maybe switch gears just a little bit here, but I do feel like there is so much, there's also so much power in the flip side of that, which is the acceptance. And mm -hmm. And I think that there, that there's a level of acceptance that comes with the cancer diagnosis, but there's also a level of acceptance that comes to really just accepting really, I, I mean, really any emotion, but I, I think that what I've seen from, from you is this acceptance of uh, like a willingness to bear grief as, as a feeling, as an emotion and to not, to not try to change it, to mold it, to fit it into a box, to make it something that it isn't. Oh, I had like a train of thought and it's just hiding on me, but 
just that just that idea that like kind of like what you said about okay denial is a cushion but then you've also got so much growth that happens from the acceptance right um, and yeah. and they're they're both equally helpful in different circumstances yeah so like what I like to to help like clients now understand is that none of these emotions are like right or wrong, right? It's really about, okay, like how is this denial serving me and how is it not? How is acceptance serving me? How is it not? Because in grief, there is this duality like you referred to. And had Ian been able to say, all right, I'm going to kind of like deny pieces of this to allow us to move forward and to live, make the most of the now and also accept the fact. And, and I think we did kind of closer to the end, except that this is happening and that I might not have forever. That also informed a lot of the decisions that we made as well, which like we took a trip to Europe together towards the end. Um, it also just like solidified you know, it just, it was like living in saturation or that's how, and I say that my therapist came up with that. Cause it's like, you know, when, when the imminence of death is right there and you don't know, it's like, it really crystallizes how important every second is. So we had to kind of somewhat accept that this was a possibility in order to embody that perspective on life, mm-hmm. which I think is something really beautiful. And I think you made the point a little bit earlier just about like, you know, I, every day is a, is a crapshoot. Every day is a gamble. We just don't talk about it in society. It's, it's not, it's not literally in, in front of your face. All it's, the not as, it's not as pronounced exactly, yeah. but it's true. And I think you only get this lens by going through something like this, whether you're the one diagnosed, whether you love someone who's diagnosed, whether you've lost someone, like bad, terrible things really do happen and there's like all this all this this really profound beautiful meaningful things that can come from it too yeah so instead of saying it's good or bad it's like all of it kind of exists and how can I make space to carry all of it yeah and it's like you said it's that duality it's Mm -hmm. it's this complicated mumble of everything like there is there is no right or wrong to it. There's no good or bad to it. It's just, it's, it's multifaceted. It's got all these different levels to it. And, and it really is just important to talk about a lot. So I know we have talked a little bit about the, the grieving of your life before a diagnosis, like, Mm. and how that can play into a role and kind of like that. There's, there's those levels of, I am sure other patients can relate to this, but there's those levels of frustration or anger that like it happened and, you know, wishing that it could be different. There's that denial, like that, you know, I know, I know many people kind of have dealt with that on some level. I know I've dealt with that on some level. I mean, I go through two out of three months, every, every cycle of scans. And I basically just try to ignore the fact that I have scans coming up and then suddenly I have to make an appointment and I'm like, oh, I have to think about this again. There's the, you know, there's the denial, there's just all those pieces to having the diagnosis to begin with. And in some ways it kind of feels like there's this, this level of, and I don't, I don't think this is the same for everyone. Maybe it's just for me, (laughs) but I know that we've talked about how, like I have had that kind of anticipatory grief of like Mm -hmm. grieving the future that may or may not happen. And like you said, sitting with that and going, does this serve me or does this not? Mm -hmm. And on what level does this help me? And I know like in my therapist sessions, she talks about how like, you know, ultimately you're going to sit here and you're going to feel this and this is your place to feel it and to kind of fall apart. I'm going to help you get back and we'll put you back together again. Mm -hmm. But ultimately you're feeling something. And I have a, a mentor that I had as a coach a while ago and he told us one time, he said, feelings are just feelings. Like they're, they're literally physical. Like they, they have a a physical manifestation in our body, but they are just feelings and they don't, they don't actually hurt us really. I mean, what I've kind of come to realize is I think they do more damage if we try to bottle them up or we try to ignore them. I think that's when they kind of do the most damage. So I guess, what would you say to maybe current patients right now who are accepting their diagnosis or working on kind of like that? They're in that stage right now, just briefly. Yeah. Well, I definitely love what you said about the feelings. And I agree. Like if you deny them, if you stuff them down, they are going to come out. 
one way or the other. And I think if I had, what I would say to a patient now is that like, if you notice a sensation or feeling arising, like it is there for a reason and it is anticipatory grief related. So I didn't know that I was, I didn't know that there was a term for anticipatory grief until after Ian died, I don't think. And it's hard because again, I think like you said, it's like by grieving some of these things, you're, you're, you're allowing yourself to feel, you're allowing yourself to kind of recognize that like your life is no longer the same. There might be certain things that you can no longer do now. Like Ian, after a while, he wasn't able to play with our kids or to get out of bed. And that was like really towards the end. But even early on, like we stopped drinking and like our friends like just stopped calling us um, because we weren't going out. Like our lifestyle was changing. And I know that seems very insignificant, but it kind of is like this ripple effect of just changes in your lifestyle. Well, and if you think even just like Ian had his eye enucleated, just the grieving process alone of losing an eye is its own Piece. And it's similar with like, you know, hair and diff- when, when cancer patients lose their hair with chemo and yeah, all of these, I mean, eye is a pretty big one and hair people say, oh, well, it's just hair, but it's like, that's a piece of your identity too, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's all of these little things that I think if we deny, you know, if we're just like, oh, they don't matter. It's like, it's this whole same concept of like grief needing to be witnessed. It's like these changes do matter. And the feelings and emotions that you're feeling as a response to these losses are all valid. So I think, again, going back to the advice is like, give yourself that permission to feel. I think having someone to process these changes with is super helpful. Like, my husband unfortunately did not want to talk to anyone about it. And I, I question to this day, like, did he internalize a lot of what was happening? Like we we talked about his cancer in the sense that we were like, we had the plan of attack, right? Like we were gonna beat it, we were in control, but he didn't ever really open up as to like how he was feeling. Was he scared? Was he I mean, I, I knew that he was like nervous about scans, but he kind of he kind of just kept to himself and and also knowing that like maybe your partner might not be that person to be a sounding board because they're so close, you know? Because um, they can't maybe necessarily handle it. Right. They might, they might not. Um, so to have that safe space or like a group, I think groups are amazing. Um, to be able to have your grief witness, to process your emotions and to feel what you need to feel in order to release it. Cause another thing about emotion, which I talk about a lot, is like when you're having these sensations arise in your body, our mind does our best. Our mind tries to stop it, right? It's like, yeah. oh, I shouldn't be feeling this way. I'm so like, angry. Oh, this is scary. This is, this is a bad feeling. I don't like exactly. it. Exactly. And we, um, we kind of like spiral out. And in order to kind of break that cycle of negative thought, we need to either like process it or move our bodies. That's why I, I use exercise. And um, this is what can kind of help calm our nervous system and get us back to this like open-hearted, calm, clear state of being so that you can make important decisions navigating this, your, your diagnosis moving forward or so you aren't blowing up on a loved one because this could be your last month together, whatever it may be, but like befriending your emotions and finding ways to cope with them will end up and and then to release them leaves more space for you to really be fully present for yourself and for other people. Yeah, no, I I think that makes sense. And I was going to say, there's a, there's a quote from the, the book burnout from Emily Nagoski and um, her sister Amelia. And it's, they talk about emotions are tunnels and we have to move through them. Mm. Like, or we get stuck, we get stuck in the dark and so, you know, there's, there's that light at the end of the tunnel that as, as difficult as actually feeling the pain of, you know, accepting that you lost your eye or that you've lost vision or that you have cancer to begin with and you have to confront scans every three months or six months or year, or that you saw a friend who passed away or that you have someone who is immediate family in your life who is, you know, close to passing away because their mm-hmm. treatments are not working. Um, whatever it is for you, like, those emotions, like, yeah, like Emily said, they're, they're there for a reason and you can, you can move through them. And Mm -hmm. it's the feeling of them that allows the rest of the growth, the rest of 
kind of just the gifts to shine through, I think. Right. And I think you can learn to understand them then too. It's like, all right, well, what is this anger telling me about, um, about my situation? And typically anger is driven by sadness. It's driven by fear. Like, so then it's like, then it allows you to kind of be with that fear. Well, what are my fears about dying and leaving my family and, you know, allowing yourself to write those down and express those. So it's almost like this whole like exploratory process of diving within and understanding yeah. why we're, we're reacting in a certain way. And that that's how you heal. So, okay. I just want to draw attention just for anyone listening. I have to just disclose here. This is a, this is a hard topic. This is a hard topic, especially like, I mean, this is, this is a triggering topic for anyone watching who has not met someone who has passed away from ocular melanoma just simply by nature of the fact that it's forcing us as a community right here to confront the fact that this does end people's lives. And we have someone in front of us who has been directly affected by that. So I recognize that this is a challenging topic. Um, but I also feel like it's just so, so, so important to get to this place, whether, whether you end up with metastatic disease or not as a patient or as a caregiver of a patient, accepting your emotions, accepting the emotion of grief and the levels that it happens and that, that loss of expectations of like how mm -hmm. life looks versus what it was is only going to help us as, as mm -hmm. patients, as people in dealing with everyday human life. It's only going to help us. And like you said, it's going to make it so that our emotions don't become kind of captured and stuck. And we end up hurting relationships with the people that we love because we lash out because like you said, we're angry or, and there's, there's something underneath the anger and we're not, we're not diving into it. And then the only other thing I wanted to say is that if you're listening to this and this feels like, oh my gosh, like I'm not doing any of these things. I'm not, I'm not writing this down. I'm not processing with a therapist. I'm not, not doing any of these things. Just pick one. You don't have to do everything all at once. It doesn't have to feel overwhelming. Pick the thing that makes the most sense to you and just do it for five minutes. I feel like for me, like I like writing, but I don't, I don't journal about cancer and about my fears of cancer every single day. It's probably like, it's just when those, when, like, like Emily said, like when those emotions really like rise up in your body and you feel them, like you go to some source, whether it's mm -hmm. a therapist or a journal or um, talking to a loved one that you trust and, and also exercise plug for exercise. So, so mm -hmm. good for processing emotion, but you just, you do the thing that makes the most sense to you. And you accept that like, it's not all going to be the same across the board. Yeah. I love that. There's no right or wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. So let's switch gears really quick and let's talk a little bit how, let's talk a little bit about like how your expectations had to shift as a caregiver from the time that you guys got that phone call, you were pregnant with your second. And obviously you said like, that was a hard day. <laughs> like it was a very hard day. But then it, it didn't get easier after that. Like it just kind of continued to get hard for a while. So how did you as a caregiver kind of cope with things, I guess, ahead of Ian's passing? And then, and then if we have time, let's also talk after, after kind of maybe some of the, the things you noticed and things you, you can look back on. As soon as Ian's cancer metastasized, we both took about like... <laughs> a couple of days. I mean, everyone was just, the emotions were so high. It's like the whole family was freaking out. Like we were looking for treatments um, in California, which is where we, we were living at the time. And they didn't really have any, anything for us. So it, we were just like operating off of fear, anger, sadness, anxiety. It was just like all of it. So we didn't make any big decisions right away, which was good. I think everyone needed some space to just breathe. And then we kind of came back to the drawing board and we kind of came up with a, a plan. Mm -hmm. And I tried to sit back and take a less like leadership role in the whole thing. My role was really supporting Ian. And luckily we had like my dad who was, he's a doctor, eye doctor, ironically. And so he could kind of help us navigate the medical scene. Ian's mom stepped up and really helped us with all of the insurance issues and like scheduling appointments, trying to save us as much money as possible. And then I had my mom also who would help us with the kids. So it was really beautiful how we kind of like came up with this, this team to figure out how we would all support this. And I like, uh, it just, I, I mean, that's what brings up emotions for me is like navigating this alone must 
it must be really hard. So I'm very grateful for that support for us. But um, yeah, for sure, it sounds like you guys had an amazing team. That's yeah, the best team, a, family, family team. <laughs> totally. But yeah, so it was hard. So you know, as time, I think in the beginning we had a lot of hope. And so we were like, we're going to beat this. We're going to do it. I supported Ian. Um, I helped him, you know, I took notes during, during visits, asked different questions because I think for Ian, he would receive the news or he'd be in an appointment and just kind of shut down. So I was kind of there to be his second set of ears to allow him to kind of process what was happening and to just take, take in whatever. And, he and even like a buffer, you could say, like a exactly. little bit of a buffer. So just to be there um, for him emotionally, but also to kind of make sure we had everything in place during those visits. I was his sounding board as a caretaker. So if he did, ha- if he did open up to me, like I was there to listen. I was also there to have fun with him. Like one thing that Ian and I did, which was awesome is we like, we made the most of those visits there. I mean, I remember walking down the hallway one day and being like this sucks like thinking in my mind this sucks you know I want to be home with my newborn baby or I want to be doing some I want to be I want to be home I don't want to be spending this time here walking in a hospital where everyone is twice as old as us and like this isn't how my life should be and I like remember that exact moment but then I remember like holding Ian's hand and I was like but we're in this together and we're a team and I don't know just like knowing that I had that we were doing this together just made it all the more um digestible Mm -hmm. but we would even on those visits we would go out for a dinner we'd go see a movie like we kind of turned them into these occasions where we could have fun and we could celebrate the joy we would bring a cribbage board with us every single visit and we would play in the waiting room and I don't know we just I I mean you could call it turning lemons into lemonade but we we really did and it did make it it made it better. It didn't take away the fact that it sucked, but like we also, we found a way to add some joy into it. And I think that's like a nice takeaway for anyone who's kind of in those situations. Like it doesn't have to be all bad. It can be a both and again. And and what are the things that you can control? How can you make this experience better for both of you? There was a word you used in one of the things that you said, you said that you had that moment of the hallway in the hallway of like, this isn't what our life should look like. And I know like we both, we both get this, like should never helps. We should on ourselves all the time as moms, as patients, as just as human beings, we do it all the time. So I think that it, it was, it just shows, I think it speaks volumes to the, the growth that you had already had as a person, or maybe the type of person that you are, that you were able to recognize that should maybe not totally consciously, but just to recognize it and to yeah. flip it and to say, no, I'm going to choose. We're going to choose to be in this together. We're going to choose to find the good in the moments that we can find it. Right. Well, and the thing with the should too, is that it's not, it's not ever a should because our life isn't guaranteed. Our, our life in reflecting on the whole experience, it's like we kind of have this vision of what our life should look like because it's kind of been instilled in us because we deny death. Yeah, because we like, deny death. Exactly. Like <laughs> we we think we're going to live forever and we're all going to grow old together. We deny that bad things are going to happen. So should is is built off of false promises, right? There are no guarantees. And so that's something that I've recognized in hindsight is that it's always a moving target. And to get angry about a should is just, it was never my life. That, that future was never promised to me anyways. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think that's kind of like the blueprint out of like step away from the shoulds and say, all yes. right, well, this is what is, this so is what, what it is. It. No, I love yeah. that. I think that's, that's a really good perspective. And I like what you said about how like the should was never promised to begin with the future that you imagined that you kind of grow up, you know, when you, when you imagine like, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to get married one day or whatever, whatever your vision for the future is the blueprint that you've had written for your life by your family culture, by growing up and just seeing it on TV, like whatever you imagine your life looking like I had this um, just like I had to, I had to realign that expectation of what my life could look like because it changed drastically. Like when my husband and I left the religion that we were growing, we both grew up in and he left first. And that was huge because it was like, Oh my goodness, like now it's all different. Like, and so just adjusting those, those expectations totally. uh, 
it's a, it like, like you said, it's a moving target. It's always, there's always moving and adjusting expectations. Mm -hmm. And if you can just sit with those and just recognize that it's the expectation that something should be different than it is right now that causes us more pain than the actual occurrence itself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's no one's fault. Like I had to, we all, you know, we all do it. I think it's human nature and we need vision too. Like vision is a beautiful thing as well. It helps us create, it helps us move forward, but like recognizing that we don't have full control over how that vision is or how, or if that vision will be executed, I think is, is key. I like what you said earlier about how, like when it was close to when it was closer to Ian's passing that you guys lived life in saturation. Yeah. And like, you know, of course your vision of what it could have looked like or would have looked like, or you wanted it to look like way back when you first got married, Mm -hmm. of course that looked different, but Mm -hmm. you still saturated those last months, like with as much living as you possibly could. Yeah, absolutely. We, we totally did. And I think one tactic that we took on was short-term goals, right? Like it was like, you have that time between the scans and we were like, all right, well that scan's done. And what are we going to do in these next three months? That's like within our power. And we didn't look beyond that really. We just just take another adjustment. (laughs) One, one scan, one appointment, one, anything at a time. Um, Okay. I think that's awesome. So, so let's move forward a little bit to to after Ian had passed. And and I think you could, you could even speak to now, maybe recognizing in hindsight, like some of the things that you did and that have helped you over the years. Um, I guess it's only, it hasn't been that many years, but it has been a couple um, coming up on three years, I think. Um, yeah. So just like, what have been, what have been some things that you, some techniques, I guess, that you've learned for just really just understanding your own grief and coping with it? And kind of when did you feel like you got to that point that you were ready for that? Right. Well, I think for me, like exercise obviously has always been a big, um, a major outlet for me. It's just, I think cancer diagnosis, metastasis, like, like there are all these instances, right? Like when Ian got, was first diagnosed, the cancer metastasized, hospice, um, and then his ultimate death, it's like all of these symbols of us losing control over our life. And I think these situations can really make you feel powerless, or at least that's how I felt. And I really struggle with that feeling. <laughs> so exercise was a way for me to kind of take back power. I felt like a little bit more in control, whether it was just like, breathing in a yoga class or doing an aggressive hit workout. It just gave me, I didn't have to put words to it, but I could just like release and feel it. And it made me feel like I had some sense of control. So I think that was having that outlet Mm -hmm. has been a constant for me since diagnosis to where I am right now. I mean, I still, I still work out every day. Yeah. um, Not just for the physical benefits, but for the emotional ones. It really is my safe space for grief. I think community is really, really key too. And I didn't rely on community as much until after Ian died because I had my best friend before. And we, and in hindsight, like I can see how there would have been probably benefit for both of us to find some other support figures other than each other. But I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't have changed it. I wouldn't change it, but I can see how it could have just, it, it could have been beneficial for the both of us. But for me after like recognizing that you aren't alone and that other people are navigating these situations and, um, you know, learning that your struggle is universal and it's not just you kind of gets you out of that victim mentality that you could easily slip into and again, it's another way of kind of taking back that, that power. It's empowering because you're like, oh, someone else, like she, she can do it. Well, then I can do it too. And so that's yeah, what I started exactly. doing is I connected with other widows on social media or a couple of friends who I knew who had lost their, their husband. And like, that's what gave me hope in the very beginning. Cause I was like, what other 32 year old has lost their husband? Like, it's just me. Like, that's how I felt. <laughs> So yeah, exercise, um, community and, and mindset. 
Um, I don't believe that you can think your way out of grief or tragedy or a cancer diagnosis. Like you can't, but you can recognize how your thoughts can add to your suffering. And that's with the shoulds that you said, or, you know, just other, I, I think the shoulds are like a big one, but recognizing too, like, where different beliefs originate from. Like I had a really hard time grieving this mom who I used to be with Ian. And because I I felt like I wasn't as good of a mom as a solo mom without him. And, you know, recognizing that a lot of the standards around motherhood were based off of my own mom or my belief system or societal standards around motherhood and recognizing that I might have to create a new paradigm for myself was really helpful, you know, like we, so I think just having an awareness over how your thoughts shape your reality and can add to your suffering or conserve you is a powerful tool. And I don't, I'm not talking about good vibes only or bypassing pain, but just noticing where these thoughts derive from. Yeah. Well, and, and like you said, at the very beginning, like none of them are wrong when you have the thought that comes up or you have this, you know, you have this like, Oh, this shouldn't have happened to me. Or like, I wish this hadn't, or I should be doing something different or whatever it is. Um, just, just the fact that, that you can observe it and notice it is really where that, that processing actually starts. Like, and as soon as you start to do that, like it's, it's, it's not about getting out of the feeling. It's really just about recognizing it and giving it space. Yeah. Um, I like to say like getting, get curious about it too. And trying to understand it. Um, And, and recognizing that the answers that you get one day may be totally different than the next day. And that it's, it's kind of just a journey. Like it it really is. It's a journey like to just, to just be curious about it and to kind of dive into each of the layers because the layers change, Mm -hmm. they change or they reveal themselves differently in different phases of life. And that definitely is, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, it's really, it really is very beneficial. I mean, I will just, put a plug for personally doing that myself, like to, (laughs) to just know that like, I can, I can now sit with something that comes up like a a hard feeling and to trust that because of the the work that I've done with therapy and with, with life coaching or with whatever other tools of mindset help and support that I have, Mm. I can recognize faster. It's, it does, I don't go into a spiral for months or weeks where I can't function or it's depriving me of joy in my life. Like I can sit with those feelings and I can give them space, but then I can also decide if I want to continue sitting there or if I want to do something else. Um, there was someone that I interviewed a while ago. She said, feel like, feel your feelings, but don't unpack and live there for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Like go there to visit when you need to go to visit or allow it to come and visit. Um, (laughs) I read this book. I don't know if you've ever seen this little kid's book. It's like a board book about a monster that is in the book and you have to do everything in the book as the, the, you're reading the book with your toddler and you're supposed to get the monster out of the book by any means possible. Only by the, by the time you scare the monster out of the book, you realize the monster's in your room and he was actually better off in the book. He did, he did less damage in the book. So it's, it's kind of like, for me, that was a, a silly mom related realization that like, okay, I have scans. They come up every three months. Mm -hmm. I can ignore them. And then I can be totally blindsided when they show up, or I can just accept that the anxiety and the nerves around scans, that the, the worries and the what ifs are going to spiral a little bit, they're going to come to visit (laughs) and I'm just going to give them some space because And because if they live with me, they're not doing all the damage everywhere else. Like, and I think that's the piece that comes with acceptance is it kind of takes you from a place of where you're arguing with reality, like where you're like, Oh, like the scans, this is awful. I wish I, I wish I didn't have them like all these thoughts, but it's like, but I do. And it shifts you into a standpoint of, okay, well now what? And now what is so much more empowering or like, how can I approach scans with a mindset that serves me or how can I find the joy and asking those questions that come with acceptance are so much more empowering. It's when we start to argue with, argue with our reality, which is where like denial, you know, can kind of get us stuck in some ways that sometimes, and, and that's what, that's what leads you to, to getting stuck. 
And yeah. so it's like running up against a wall and you're just like frustrated with the situation. So kind of circling back to the beginning of our conversation. I know. It's just, it's kind of a cycle and it really is, it's the same for all emotions. I mean, yeah. I think, and, I think and, we do easier for positive emotions sometimes than we do right. for well, negative not, ones or what we think are negative. And we're not, cause we're not taught to deal with the negative ones. And, yeah. and I think another point too, is like when you're running up against the wall too, and you're angry and you're frustrated, like that's valid too. Cause you yeah. need to kind of work through those emotions in order to get to a place of calmness and curiousness where you can be like, all right, what am I going to do about the situation? Yeah, exactly. I swear there was a post that you did, you did a little while ago and you just, you talked about how our culture doesn't want to talk about grief. Yeah. Like that they don't, they don't, they don't want to talk about it. They want to talk about what you do after it. (laughs) They want to talk about like, okay, did you like, did you, did you move on or how did you move on? They want to know how did it end, right? And right. and I think it was more recently you shared something just about how you, oh, I think it was your reel. You said by by loving him, it said you had a question. Have you been able to move on? And you said, uh-huh. I actually haven't moved on and I don't intend to. That, and that would mean that I have let go like, of, yeah. of Ian and like that you you don't, you haven't done that. You carry him with you in everything that you do. You You think about him, I mean, every day, I mean, I think you, you can't, you can't help but do that when you have two of his two beautiful kids that you had with exactly. him. Exactly. Um, yeah. But I mean, there's so many other layers to that as well, but I just thought that was so beautiful. Thanks. Yeah. I think grief, it's not only not talked about, it's also just so misunderstood. And I agree. I think people believe that there is this like end goal or finish line that you kind of cross where you have moved on. Um, and it's just not, that's just not the way it works. And I think that that mindset causes more damage and suffering than, than good. Cause it creates false expectations around the grieving process. And yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think it goes back to denial of like death again too. Right. Um, or just, we don't like to talk about people struggling. We like to see it, it's okay to go through hardship if you overcome it. And, you know, victory is going to look different for everyone. Right. Because we're all, sure. we're all different people to begin with. So yeah, I know exactly what video you're talking about. And it really is about integrating grief and integrating your loss. And Ian's still fully, fully present with me in a very different way. But like he's he's here. He's still very much a part of our life. And I, I hope that that gives anyone facing cancer too hope and some reassurance that it's like people's legacy lives on, love lives on. And yeah. Clearly, you want to be here for that, but Ian, Ian is still very much a part of our life. Well, I, I feel like I have loved, I've loved chatting with you, and I just feel like you have so much to offer. Even if, I mean, I, I know that like some people may have a harder time following, following your account just because of like feeling triggered or just feeling worried about the idea, and the, and and again goes back to that denial of death of like being forced to confront that like this is a possibility. Um, Mm -hmm. but I do find so much value every time I see any of your, your posts, your videos, and I know that you're doing a really, really amazing work for the people who, who are in the midst of, you know, heavy, heavy grief and that they're dealing with the loss of a loved one. So I just want to kind of let you make a plug for move through (laughs) real quick, um, before we end, because (laughs) it is, it seems like such a valuable thing. And it's the kind of thing that. I, I selfishly wanted to do this podcast because my preparatory mind is like, this needs to be in the air so that my family can find this. If in 10 years, I'm not here <laughs> so that they know. That takes so much courage for you to say and to admit. And I, I'm just like in awe of everything that you do as well. So well, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> So how can people find you? What's okay, the best move way? through. It's, um, my website is move through grief, and that's T H R U move through grief dot com. Um, I'm on Instagram Emily P Bingham, and I'm also on TikTok. Yes, <laughs> which Ooh, is crazy. I never place. thought that I'd be talking about grief and loss on TikTok, but it's just 
it's an amazing community over there. And my handle is Emily Moves Through Grief. But um, yeah, my business has basically turned into an online coaching service for anyone coping with grief. I use movement, mindset, and community as my tools to support people. I have a free Facebook group um, called Move Through. And then I have some paid programs. I'm doing like a holiday grief group right now um, for people trying to (laughs) survive the holidays with grief. And I also, in my free Facebook group, I do have a couple people whose um, husband or wife is facing a, a terminal illness. So if you do want to request access, you, I, I accept. I, I would heavily it. in the anticipatory grief phase yes. where you mm-hmm. know it's coming and you're trying to handle life while at the same time knowing the life is going to change. Right. Right. So we're welcome in. Um, and then, yeah, I do like a, I do a 12 week uh, coaching program for widows who are really trying to rebuild their life without their person. And then I'm launching a new one here in January, which will be really heavily focused on movement um, and using exercise as a tool to cope with grief. So well, I love that. And I hope that like those of you in our audience who are listening, if you know someone who has um, lost a parent or a sibling or a spouse, um, a partner to ocular melanoma, to uveal melanoma, and they have never explored this kind of an avenue before. Um, I guess I, I, I think Emily, I think you would agree with this too. I don't think it's ever too late to have community and have that, that Mm -hmm. mindset and that support to move through your grief and to kind of have that, that community with you. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think it's ever too late. If, If it's been five years, if it's been 15, like it's still a valid, it's still a valid emotion and it's still something that you can make space for with a community that understands. So, so if you know someone you're listening (laughs) later, please pass this on because I feel like Emily really just has so much to offer with her community. Yeah. Okay. Well, speaking of the holidays, is there, I guess, is there anything that you would just say right now, just knowing, knowing that the holidays can be a tricky time for, for people who have lost someone or for people who have lost friends to this, that, you know, you feel would be helpful maybe to end with? Yeah, I think my biggest thing is um, probably just giving yourself permission and permission that is to feel whatever you need to feel, permission to not go to that holiday party if you don't want to go, <laughs> permission to not decorate, to or, you know, permission to do something totally different. Because like we said, there is no right or wrong. And um, so allowing yourself to let go of the shoulds and honing in on what will serve you right now, what is most meaningful for you, um, what's going to help you cope with the loss or what's going to be more meaningful for you to spend time with someone with a terminal illness, getting in service to yourself as opposed to others' needs all the time. I love that. giving yourself that permission. Okay. Well, Emily's written you guys a permission slip. (laughs) Here. We're going to hand it over. Um, okay. Well, Emily, I am so glad that we got to do this and I would obviously like, I mean, I wish we could hang out. You're not that far. Maybe I'll fly to Colorado. One day. Um, you're not that far, but thank you guys for tuning in and thank you, Emily, for being here. We will have this up on the podcast, hopefully within the next month or so at the very latest. And we'll just be able to have this as a resource to tune into. And I will have in the show notes later and in the links, I'll make sure to put Emily's website if you want to go and explore there and her handles for her social media. Thank you again for joining us. We're going to let you guys go and I'm going to end the stream. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast. Please make sure to subscribe. And if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. Feel free to follow us on Facebook or on Instagram at Acure Insight. Thanks so much and have a wonderful day.